I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Yeah, this is the latest round of GOP dysfunction. So we saw the bill today pass with just over 50% of Republicans voting for it. GOP is going to throw a fit about this stuff. And then at the last second, they're usually going to agree to something and the shutdown will get averted. And if you keep playing with fire, eventually you're going to get burned. I don't see Haley dropping out before the convention for a few reasons. One is because the campaign's over when money stops. And Haley, surprisingly, is outraising Trump right now. Of course, the Muslims are not running London or setting the political agenda. Not yet, you say. <laughs> oh dear God. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. The United Kingdom is a great country. Never, never been a good bet to bet against America. Hi, hello and welcome. I'm Robert Brown. This is Mid-Atlantic, the podcast that explores American and UK politics from both sides of the Atlantic. And today I'm sat in Birmingham. Today we're going to look at the week in American politics on what a week it's been. And if we get the time, we're going to look at 30p Lee Anderson and his comments about Islamicists running London. Joining me today, we have our panel of experts. We have Tonya Oltrade, Aaron Fisher, Logan Phillips and Z Cohen Sanchez. As the United States teeters on the brink of yet another potential government shutdown, but maybe by the time you hear this, it's all being sorted. The stakes are high and the political drama intense. Congress faces critical deadlines on March 1st and March 8th to pass necessary funding legislation. But amongst this backdrop, the Speaker Mike Johnson is at the centre of the contentious debate defending his spending deal against conservative critics within his own party. Johnson's efforts to reform the budgeting process aimed to break down massive spending packages into smaller, more digestible pieces reflects a broader struggle to steer legislation in a new direction. But what does the current impasse in D.C. say about the Republican Party and its ability to govern? Congressional leaders have announced that they have got an agreement to kick the can down the road just a little bit longer on federal spending. So instead of having the deadlines be this Friday and next Friday, they're now next Friday and March 22nd. Congressional leaders say that they think that they have six bills that they can get done by next week. Uh, But the couple of bills, they admit they're taking a little more time. They're a little trickier to do. There are a few more debates, and those are the ones they're hoping to pass on March 22nd. I mean, this is a bipartisan agreement, but there are Republicans on the Hill 
people are not happy about this. They did not want to see a continuation of spending. Uh, they don't think that these sort of kick the, kicking the can down the road moments are good uh, for Congress or for the party. Uh, and so it'll be very interesting to see when this bill comes to the floor in the House, is it going to be able to get a majority support of Republicans? That's going to be a big test for Speaker Johnson. And of course, it's simply a question, can they all move fast enough? Uh, the House will probably be able to get this done very quickly. But of course, in the Senate, any one senator can delay things. And that will raise the question whether or not we will have a small shutdown going into the weekend. Aaron Fisher, I'm coming over to you, my friend. GOP dysfunction, discuss. <laughs> There's so much to discuss. Yeah, this is the latest round of GOP dysfunction. So we saw the bill today pass with just over 50% of Republicans voting for it. I believe all of the Democrats voting for it. And essentially, this is another stopgap spending bill. So there's going to be a little bit more time to iron out the details of the spending package that will enable the government to stay open. They were just days away from government shutdown, which would have obviously impacted all kinds of people in all kinds of ways from services that wouldn't have been provided to checks for various benefits that wouldn't have gone out. And it would have been disastrous as every government shutdown before has been. But it also is the, the speaker reneging on a promise that he had made to never do another one of these stopgap bills. And essentially, he's facing the reality that the hard right, the ultra mega faction of the, of the Republican Party, it just isn't going to come along for the ride when it comes to governing. And we've seen this over and over again with the House GOP. Logan, I, I must admit, this government shutdown almost passed me by almost, in the eyes of the American voter with presidential primaries, a war in Ukraine, a war in Gaza, etc. Has this potential shutdown of the government been almost on the minds of the average American, would you say? I think it has not. Because this has happened so much, it's starting to get normalized. Now, if the government actually shuts down, that's going to change. But we're used to the drama now. The GOP is going to throw a fit about this stuff. And then at the last second, they're usually going to agree to something and the shutdown will get averted. And if you keep playing with fire, eventually you're going to get burnt and that won't be the case. But for now, until another speaker gets kicked out and, and we're into voting rolls again to uh, see if they can find a replacement, I think it seems relatively like lower drama. Z, I want to come to you because the thing which I found really fascinating, not just me, everybody finds this uh, somewhat fascinating, that this is intra-party fighting. This is GOP dysfunction of, of the highest order. Explain that those kind of factions for people who maybe aren't taking that much of a close eye on it. But we have a speaker who is relatively to the right of the Republican Party, but there are people still to the right of him who are attacking him and basically gumming up the works. Yeah, this it's interesting because I think that this was the the compromise, right? And the compromise is now not working, which at some point this sort of MAGA versus more centrist Republicans is going to have to, there's going to have to be a head somewhere. I think that's going to be at the convention which we can talk a little bit more as we get into Nikki Haley and how that's all going to go down. But yeah, as as everybody was saying, I think that this has become government shutdowns are now pretty common for the most part. But we, what we should be paying attention to is what's going to happen now with the speaker. Now, I do. I think that just very recently, it looks like in the last, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes to an hour, it seems like they've at least passed a short term funding bill to avoid it or push it out. I think it's going to give us now till March 8th. Not like that's going to really change a whole lot, but it's still going to give us some time, I think, to see where this goes. It's especially going to be interesting, too, to see how these de how the Democrats, how those the, the Congress people, including that New York district that we flipped, how that's going to affect everything. Yeah, and we have to be careful talking about the the different factions within the Republican House GOP as being more center versus less, there's virtually no one who's center anymore. Those people have all been run off. They're not in the party. They're gone. Describing Mike Johnson as center when he's part of the faction that would that sees IVF being banned is in his range. That tells you just how far to the right this guy is. He's made all kinds of comments of, uh, about 
basically breaking down the separation of church and state. This guy is far right by any standard, except for maybe the one that MAGA is setting right now. It's really more of a fight between people who think that it's still important for them to govern because government does matter at some level versus people who just say burn it all down and essentially have no interest in government. Yeah. That's true. It's interesting, too, because what do you do with the, the John Kasichs of the party, right? Do they just, I guess that they simply just don't exist anymore. Yeah, we're getting into a territory that is beyond dangerous. It used to be the conservatives that were liberally or they followed like liberal policies in terms of they were okay with gay marriage and they were okay with certain liberal policies. They were Most of them were fiscally conservative, which is why they decided that they were Republicans. But yeah, it seems to be that there is not a high enough percentage of those people anymore to even be considered as part of the party. With this level of bickering between or fighting, infighting in the GOP and with that kind of MAGA crowd, that hard right crowd, and I agree with, with, with Aaron here, that the GOP definitely in Congress just seems to be moving ever and ever to the right. How much is something like foreign policy now being pushed completely, pushed to one side because the concerns are so intra-fractional. I don't know, uh, Logan, what what do you reckon? I think foreign policy is important to that when the party, they just have a very different view of foreign policy. They're a little bit more where America was pre-FDR, which is more focused on themselves, isolationist, not wanting to get involved in the rest of the world. That was the dominant foreign policy strain for most of American history. Woodrow Wilson became incredibly unpopular after World War I, and Democrats were punished and had an incredibly low number of seats in Congress and Senate in the aftermath. And so it's just once America was involved in being the Nazis in Imperial Japan and we started engaged more in the world, we changed the way we look at ourselves, right? But that isolationist strain didn't really go away, and it's certainly on the rise right now. I don't think it's the majority of Americans, but it is the majority of Republicans, and it is certainly the majority of MAGA. Their view of foreign policy is let's not do it uh, nearly as much and let's spend less money. And for some of them, it's less have a smaller military. That's not all of them. And so that's why Ukraine aid is running into uh, problems right now. Otherwise, it, it would be supported. It does have a combination of the burn it down sort of wing of the Republican Party is often the ones most objectioning to Ukrainian aid. But it's not that they are. It's a different impulse here. It's more about their, how they see America's role in the world. Yeah, but I think this is largely the result of the cult of personality, right? All things lead back to Trump. They had the most Republican-friendly immigration deal imaginable that Democrats had signed on to the chagrin of many Democrats, right? Progressives were totally disgusted by the immigration bill that Senate Democrats negotiated. And the Republicans walked away from it because Trump basically said he didn't want it. He wanted the issue in the election more than he wanted the policy change. In my, my mind, really encapsulates what's going on with the Republican Party is that it's become power by all means, and to the extent that that was tied to policy, that's starting to go away. And even for the avatar of that kind of, I'm willing to go further than anyone, but it's still for policy goals, philosophy, Mitch McConnell is going away. So Mitch McConnell was the Senate Majority Leader, a very effective Majority Leader, and now he's he's stepping down, appears due to health reasons. But he's been the voice of reason in the Republican Party. He was the sort of counterpart to Nancy Pelosi, who was the most powerful speaker going back at least 20 or 30 years. And Mitch McConnell was the same on the Senate side. He managed to essentially steal a, a Supreme Court seat and was willing to go to lengths that no one else had ever been willing to go to. But even for him, this MAGA wing has got way too far. Trump mercilessly attacked his wife in very uh, racist ways. We don't even have to call it racially tinged. And he's been the bulwark to a certain extent for the institutionalist Republicans that still exist. But now who do they have? Who does that mantle even get passed off to? Within the factions in the Republican Party, there's a, a vacuum on the non-MAGA side of things. who will know, Aaron. Ira Shapiro, who's coming on to Mid-Atlantic next week. Ira's written a book, The Betrayal, how Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans abandoned America. She's coming on to the show next week, I believe Monday, could be Tuesday, can't quite remember. But what you can do, listener, 
a sign up for a Substack. So go to Royfield.com, hit sign up, takes you to the Substack, or just go to Substack and type in Royfield. And when you become a member, just do the free option. It's totally fine. Do the free option. Then you'll get the Zoom link. So you'll be able to be in the audience when I interview Ira about Mitch McConnell's career and what he, what him basically standing down actually means for the Republican Party. You queued me up perfectly there, Mr. Fisher. So that was a kind of segue that makes you our fearless leader. That was incredible. I just want to applaud your hosting skills there. That was, <laughs> you really outdid yourself with that one, right? That was beautiful. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. He's not watching out for America, he's watching out for himself. Exit polls showed more than 30% of South Carolina's Republican voters would be dissatisfied if Trump became the nominee. Haley tells us that should be a warning. When you look back at results from over the weekend in South Carolina, what is your big takeaway? Donald Trump did not get 40% of the vote. And that's the same thing that happened in Iowa. That's the same thing that happened in New Hampshire. And that should be a red flag for Republicans everywhere. Haley also blasted Trump's takeover of the Republican National Committee. Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel announced she's stepping down, forced out by the former president, to make way for Trump's daughter-in-law and another ally to lead the party. Some RNC members are now concerned the committee may have to foot the president's legal bills. You've got Donald Trump using the Republican Party as his playpen and now going to take the Republican Party to be his legal slush fund. That is a sinking ship for Republicans. Haley has promised to stay in the race through Super Tuesday. Voters in 15 states go to the polls, but a key finance source is drying up. Americans for Prosperity Action, backed by the billionaire Koch brothers, says it'll no longer spend millions to help Haley because it doesn't think she has a path to victory. Oh, now we are just days away from Super Tuesday, the pivotal march to fifth primaries and caucuses across 15 states and one territory. These contests will allocate over a third of the local delegates for the 2024 Republican convention in July. With Donald Trump expected to dominate these elections, there's little doubt he'll be on the cusp of securing the GOP presidential nomination, possibly as early as March 19th. Meanwhile, Nikki Haley faces increasing pressure from both public and private quarters within the Republican Party to withdraw from the race as efforts to rally behind Trump intensified despite his controversial standing. Logan, can you give us some figures? Because it seems to me that we're all geared up for a fantastic presidential primary race, at least on the Republican side, and it's been somewhat of a damn squib. What are you pollsters doing? And then what can you tell us about the polls? And who's voting for Nikki Haley? And can she... Oh, Haley can continue as long as she wants. Uh, she's not going to win the nomination, but she's gotten pretty sizable support up to this point, which makes you wonder back in the day when DeSantis and Trump were neck and neck like a year ago. And maybe it was real and DeSantis would have had a shot at beating him if the polls were underrating him too. But DeSantis completely collapsed and the Trump got stronger after every indictment. And I sometimes wonder if it's a little bit like what happened to Bernie in the heart attack. There was a brief moment in the Democratic primary in 2020 where Elizabeth Warren had surpassed Bernie. When Bernie was had fallen to third place, got into 15%, Warren was at 20, and it was looking like, oh, maybe this is a Biden versus Warren race in the end. But Bernie had a heart attack, and within a day or two, his numbers surged back ahead of Warren. All the support she had picked up from him went. And part of it is because a heart attack isn't a sign that you're going to be a better president, but voters like Bernie have a very deep emotional connection with him. Probably not as strong as Trump supporters have with him, but I think there's a rally around the flag moment that happened after those indictments. And uh, the voters have uh, stuck by because Trump is very good at specifically with his base, creating um, a narrative that everyone's out to get me. I'm the only one holding them back from you type thing. And that has been a powerful message for him in this primary. Just, just, just before we go on to, to Z here, what is the matchup looking like between everyone presumes it's going to be Biden, everyone presumes it's going to be Trump? What are, the, what are those matchup polls looking like at the moment? Polling-wise, Donald Trump would probably win if the election were today. You need a polling error for that not to be the case. He is leading in most of the swing states, not necessarily by a lot, but he's clearly leading. I don't necessarily think he's favored overall. A few, there's a few indicators I'd look at. The economy is pointing in the direction of a Biden win, and that's more predictive than polling is necessarily by far. Incumbents, I was looking at uh, several, like 400-plus races on the last 
60 years. When you have a rematch, the incumbent tends to do about 1% better the second time around. And candidates that are indicted or convicted of crimes really underperform as well. So there's a lot here to say, okay, maybe this won't end up as the polls are today, but it's certainly competitive. And, you know, it's not necessarily an easy thing for all of us to come to terms with, but Donald Trump can absolutely win this election. Uh, Z, what are the long-term implications of Haley just sticking in this race and getting, what, 30% of the vote, let, let's say? Her chances of winning are incredibly slim, but should she just stay in this race? Because it seems to be like political logic has been turned on its head with Donald Trump. Who knows whether he'll be behind bars come November or there'll be some other machination, which means that he can't actually be Republican nominee. What do you reckon? I don't see Haley dropping out before the convention for a few reasons. One is because the campaign's over when money stops. And Haley, surprisingly, is outraising Trump right now. Now, why, how? <laughs> That's a whole separate podcast we could have a conversation on. But I think that there's a lot of interest in her. And I actually, I was reading a New York Times article this morning about the title of the article is that Nikki Haley's actually winning, which I think is a little, that's a little skewed. But he is in this, the right, Frank Bruni, who, who wrote the article, he made a very good point about how this is a long game for Haley. She's young. She's got a lot of life in her. There's going to be, first of all, we don't even know if Trump is going to make it. That's, that is a very big possibility. His health is not good. He survives on damn burgers and just, his diet cokes and he is under an immense amount of stress with all of uh, the lawsuits that he has and all and also he's bleeding money from his from his campaign on legal fees which is also not super helpful so really he makes a good point that Haley's in this for the long game and I think it's actually very smart of her because at the end of the day if Biden wins he's it's going to be I told you and then she's going to be the next choice and then if Trump wins, it is also going to be, I told you. So it's, to be honest, until her money runs out, she has, it's really at this point, I think, a delegate game for her. Erin, uh, is there any mileage in the No Labels organization getting her to be uh, their presidential nominee come November? And, and maybe that's another reason why she's staying in this race, to prove that she has this small but stubborn electorate. It could be. No Labels has done a lot of the work to get on the ballot, which is actually quite hard. Um, it's very complex. Each state has their own rules, their loops to jump through, signatures that have to be gathered, and all kinds of uh, technicalities that could potentially trip up a new party. But it seems like they've done a good job with that and that they're likely to be on the ballot. Now, Nikki Haley has said multiple times now she has no interest in No Labels. We'll see what happens over time. It could be that she sees an opportunity. It could be that she truly becomes the candidate of the Never Trumpers and they see a way to take away that really crucial Never Trump, but please don't make me vote for Biden crowd and give them a place to go that's both not Trump and also a home to not have to vote for Biden. And they can actually execute the protest vote through her. It seems like there's a number of people who are really looking for an alternative now, that said, her running would very likely lead to a Biden win, and she would have to be willing to be the person who did that. And I really doubt that's her end game. I think that she thinks that she's got a shot in a post-Trump GOP. And like Z said, she's got a lot of years. She's got a career ahead of her, potentially. And so I don't think that she would play the role of spoiler. I'm curious, what, what makes you think that, that she would lose against Biden? Because... I think the opposite. I think if it's her versus Biden, I think that she has a way better shot. This is probably a little. Oh, I agree. <laughs> no, I agree with you. I, what I'm saying is if she were to run under the no labels party, oh, yeah, she, would, yeah. she would then be a third party candidate. So I think oh. most of her support would likely come from the centrist flank of the Republican Party, the kind of Mitt Romney Republicans who really are institutionalists, who don't like the social conservatism particularly and have just tolerated it over the years, right? The people who want to see lower taxes, they want to shrink the safety net, the true neoliberals, as opposed to the evangelical Christian wing and their what's become Christian nationalism at this point for a lot of them. 
it's certainly not the libertarian wing, right? This is really those people who are make up most of the never Trump crowd, but they're still stragglers who are still part of the GOP and have just looked the other way. Yeah, that's a big part of the problem, too, is like, how do we determine if that never Trump crowd is going to vote for Biden? I that that's what really screws things up, because if obviously if they don't vote for Biden, it doesn't matter. Right. Like it nothing really shifts or changes. But it, so I guess it depends on how much they hate Trump. Yeah, it's still and I'm curious what Logan thinks about this. It's still fake if they stay home. That's a minus one. If they were to flip to Biden, that's a minus two for Trump. But it seems to me that if they have a third option, they'd be more likely to vote for that than maybe they would be to switch all the way to Biden. But I'm curious what you've seen, Logan. Yeah, I would say that Biden would be in bad shape if he's not winning those voters. That was a, a very important part of his 2020 victory. And if he loses even small numbers of working class, non-white voters, some of that coalition to Trump, uh, he's going to have to pick it up elsewhere. And those are voters who are more likely to to go in that direction, especially if Trump ends up being convicted and the focus of this election is on some of the crimes Donald Trump has allegedly and most likely committed. That, that's the group that gets a lot more squishy uh, when they're asked, how would this change your perspective, white college-educated Republicans? Which, look, that's not exactly the group you're talking about, right? It's just a group that happens to overlap pretty well, right? Not every white college-educated Republican um, is more skeptical of Trump, but they're certainly the part of the party he does the worst with. It's only about Biden trying to find voters, but potentially he's losing some. The delegate vote is worth lingering on for a minute. Obviously, look, Joe Biden is taking currently all of the delegates that have been allocated, but all of the delegates have not yet been allocated in Michigan. And, you know, the headline is an overwhelming victory for Joe Biden here, around 80 percent of the vote. But that question of uncommitted, we were talking about some very particular places. The two types of places we wanted to see how that was doing were, number one, places with large Arab American populations, large Muslim American populations. And then number two, places with large college populations, college students, college faculty and staff. And Dearborn is a majority Arab American county. It has the largest concentration per capita of Muslim Americans of any city uh, in the United States. And what happened in Dearborn last night? Uncommitted beat Donald Trump in Dearborn last night by a 56 to 41 percent. If we look at uh, Michigan's Democratic uh, primary, a significant number of voters opted to cast for uncommitted. Uh, these votes seem discontent with President Biden's stance on the Gaza conflict. Despite Biden's overall victory, the proportion of uncommitted votes exceeded 13%. And uh, this, as it stands potentially, is that could influence the political landscape in the crucial swing states. Gotta come to you, Logan. This is so in your wheelhouse. 13% to me sounds like a lot and the demographics of Michigan are that there are a lot of Arab Americans and Muslim Americans within that state. Is this 13% particularly noticeable, uh, sorry, particularly significant, sorry, historically looking at Michigan and looking at primals? What I like to do a lot when you're trying to understand what happened in an election is look for historical comparisons. And so 2012 gives this one, President Obama, about as popular with the Democratic base as you could be. For whatever reason, when that primary, which was a bit of a laugher of one, one of the only states he ran into some minor pushback was Michigan. And you had 12.5% um, of nursery voters in the Democratic primary voted for uncommitted. And so we're seeing rough, only slightly more did that for Joe Biden. It was about 13.4% um, in 24. So I'm not questioning that Gaza isn't an issue for Biden. Morally, based off the death toll in Gaza, that's important even separate from the politics. But, and I, I think it really matters, especially of young voters, which might be even more in Michigan because 2% of voters there are Arab, which is a high number relative to other states, but there's a lot more young voters and this is the top issue. But that being said, we didn't see it from the result in Michigan. I would say if anything, it was failure and it makes sense, right? It's really hard to mobilize people to vote for no one. That doesn't really make uh, coherent sense to the average person unless they're following politics really closely. And Democrats were choosing mostly between him and Dean Phillips and the ghost of Marion Williamson and uncommitted basically did the same as it would have done otherwise. This was an important vote and it was well set up to be a statement vote. You've got essentially a non-competitive primary 
And also there's a, a saying, in the primaries, you vote with your heart. In the general, you vote with your head. So the primaries don't actually decide who's going to win an election most of the time. And in this case, it certainly doesn't. And so if you are or someone who's upset about what's going on in Gaza, the uncommitted campaign was very appealing, whether you were someone who is staunchly never going to vote for Biden because you feel that he's essentially supporting war crimes and is complicit, or if you were someone who thinks that what's going on in Gaza is completely unacceptable, but you feel that Trump would be far worse and you're going to make a business decision in November, regardless of whether or not you approve of Biden's handling of Gaza or not. And so I think that the 13% overrates what's going to end up happening in the general. I think that people are going to largely would have voted for Biden before the Israel-Gaza war fight conflicts took off. I think they're going to end up voting for Biden in the long run for the most part. But the margins are so slim that it, it could be the difference. It absolutely could be. And on that note, we are going to move to the other side of the Atlantic and discuss the fact that Islamists have taken control of London. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A very cowardly con uh, running London. He's, uh, he seems to be letting the, uh, not only the Jewish population down, but the whole population of London and Britain as a whole. And I heard the comments here, I heard the comments earlier you was making about Suella, some of the comments she made earlier this week. And I don't actually believe that these Islamists have got control of our country, but what I do believe is they've got control of Khan and they've got control of London and they've got control of Storm as well. Yes, the, the London Mayor uh, Sadiq Khan called those comments Islamophobic, uh, anti-Muslim and racist. Rishi Shunak sacked him, but now he's facing a backlash. There's reports of the inboxes of Tory MPs there are full of support for Lee Anderson. What do you make of all of this? Well, Lee Anderson admitted uh, himself that he left Rishi Sunak no choice uh, but to remove the whip from him. Rishi Sunak actually asked him to either clarify or apologise his statements uh, for his statements. They were clumsy, they were ill thought out, and they, they were they were they had no basis in truth or reality. He really had no evidence that Sadiq Khan was in the pocket of Islamists. And there's so many, so many things you could level against um, Sadiq Khan that I don't understand why he chose to to make this cheap shot. The reality is, people like Lee Anderson and 
Suella Braverman were brought in to boost Rishi Sunak's uh, credentials. They were effectively, you know, attack dogs for the, the Goldman Sachs suited and booted Rishi Sunak, who really had no appeal with traditional working class or, or even sort of blue Tory voters. And unfortunately, because they have no effectively political instincts, they make these clumsy statements and they leave Rishi Sunak with no choice but to distance himself and the party from them. Islamists have got control of London and it's Mayor Sadiq Khan. He's given our capital city away to his mates. I don't believe that Islamists have got control of our country, but what I do believe is they've got control of Khan and they've got control of London. The fallout from Lee Anderson's inflammatory remarks regarding London Mayor Sadiq Khan has seen the Tories say the comments are wrong, but not explain why. Anderson's accusations have sparked a firestorm of debate, highlighting tensions within the Conservative Party and prompting broader discussions about race, religion and political rhetoric in the UK. But, Tanya, I've never asked you this, but are you a Muslim, sir? No, Kristen. Oh, okay. All right. I, I, I just thought I'd just ask the question. So the other bunch, the Muslims, are they running amok in London? Are, are, are they are they setting the political agenda? Is Sadiq Khan in hot to extremists of the Muslim persuasion? Of course, the Muslims are not running London or setting the political not agenda. Yet. Not yet, you say. <laughs> oh, dear God. And of course, Sadiq Khan is not ad hoc to anyone, and not least to to Islamists, as as, as Mr. Lee Anderson calls it. Look, this stuff is already tedious and stultifying at this point. It is extremely deflating. Anyone who's still listening to these people need help. It's really boring at this point. I was really shocked by the comments. <laughs> not necessarily that they came out of Lee Anderson's mouth her say about Islam and it being antithetical to Western democracy and all because that is the in that's Steve Bannon talk. It's in the right wing milieu all over whether uh, extreme right wing, sorry, whether it's in the US or in Europe and stuff. So for him to say it per se was a really a shock. But to point the finger at Sadiq Khan, isn't he just saying the mayor of London is a Muslim and he's brown? Because I cannot think of one thing which that man has done or said, which anyone could construe as being as favouring the Muslim. I can't think of anything either. What has Sadiq done? What, what's he done? It's something. It's flabbergasting this stuff. I'm telling you, there's anyone who's still listening to them needs proper help. And I, I think we've been polite for a very long time. I personally have been polite to a lot of people who still contend to listen to this kind of talk. But at this point, I just, I am really bored with it. I just cannot stand it anymore. The familiar tropes, look, we've had the Islamists are running London, the, the Wokerati, the coffee drinking Wokerati are running the country. North Londoners are running the country because they're Starmer's friends. The Bank of England was running it at one time. The OBR they were, they were though. The Bank of England, book over. Like, yeah, well, go on. <laughs> you continue. And the, the OBR was also running it at one time when least trust run down the economy. The metropolitan elite, look, there is there are so many people and this stuff is obviously dog whistle for a bunch of people who really need to hear this to give them some sort of assurance that they're still on their side. The, the, there is no way that anyone can still have any belief of, of this stuff. Look, Liz Truss went to, to an to an American conference the other day and she was saying with all of her, her veins popping at as hundred miles per hour that she was let down by by the client journalists and, and by by um the by the lawyers, by uh, people who will actually challenge her economic policy. It's just there's just no roads anyway for this. And the fact that Sunak has had to send Lee Anderson on a he, he brought him in as his deputy chairman to help him gather up that base that, that Sunak really didn't have any inways through. Um and now he's had to he's had to suspend him. He's had to so he, he's literally had to Cut rid of this cancer before before it, it it kills him, but I'm sure he's already a dead man walking at this point. The least trust thing is, is very bizarre that she's now some minor starlet in... She went to CPAC in CPAC. CPAC, indeed. Yeah. She's, like, she's some minor starlet on the old extreme right, and this woman was the British Prime Minister just less than two years ago. It's beyond bizarre. And 
it wasn't the woke lot or the last had a drinking metropolitans that got rid of it. It was her lot. It was the bankers. It was the bankers that that said, if you're going to do this, you'll crash the economy. And everybody started selling the pound. I had nothing to do with with, with her mess. But you didn't, unless you're a banker. Anyway, anyway, um, moving swiftly on. So Lee Anderson has had the whip uh, taken uh, from him. um, But he's not apologizing. And... The other thing I find incredibly fascinating is that Tory ministers, Tory grandees are lining up to say he was wrong, what he said was wrong, but they're not exactly explaining why. Why can't Tory ministers just say, it's Islamophobic, you can't say that, why? And and the fact they kept saying can't, it's not even a dog whistle, the man was shouting that this man is brown and he's running our capital city. It's similar to what's happening in the US and what folks Aram and Z spoke about earlier. It's a quest for power. And that's all this is about for them in the Tory party. Anything that's going to keep them in power, no matter how disgusting it is. And that's why they cannot say the word is Islamophobic. It's really... It was a metropolitan police are investigating because they had received, received the reports that some anti- Islamic uh, racially aggravated comments were made. They, they are they are investigating this case and we'll see what comes out of their investigation. But the fact that no politician can come out and say this is Islamophobic and this is not acceptable is just because they are hungry for power and they would go to the lowest of the law. But Richard Tice of the Reform UK Party is rubbing his hands glee. He, he could have an MP in Parliament. He could indeed. I, apparently they met up in a hotel on the M4 Richard Tice and Lee Anderson <laughs> sometime earlier this week. It so happens. Oh, it is so reported. Look, he could have an MP on his hands and it's just Lee Anderson's just the right person he wants. I don't understand how we've had this kind of people in, in Parliament for this much in the Conservative Party. But he could definitely well be defecting. He has refused to apologize and that's just the kind of personality he has. He's one of these really dog chomping, I'm a strong man and what I say is what I say kind of thing. He said his language was clumsy, which I was even surprised that he even could uh, acknowledge that level of accountability. But overall, yeah, I don't see him apologizing and I probably see him moving on to the Reform Party. Yeah, I just say, looking from the other side of the pond, that this is the strongman playbook, right? Like you're spot on. They're rejecting polite society. They are saying it's not what we want. It's not what we want to be a part of. And we're tired of having to pretend that we're part of you. And honestly, I like it when these people just say who they are straight up. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very good for them to review who they are straight up. I guess it's good for a good number of people who can actually tell the difference that this is what they are. Um, but it also brings a lot of, of in, inside hidden um, um xenophobes out he brings a lot of people who you know we've seen it with trump right we've seen the kind of people he encourages and we've seen the kind of stuff that yeah those people are emboldened to do so it also brings that level of jeopardy back into society but it's good to for them to draw their lines the, 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 the thing with people like the innocent is we've always known which line he was where he was we've always known who he was so, so he's not actually giving us any new information he's just drenched up something that's Absolutely unnecessary and really stupid. Well, when he does do that, though, does it force people who want to pretend that he is acceptable to acknowledge that he isn't? Is that something that's happening there? Because I feel like that's one of the big fights in the states right now is whether or not is Trump acceptable? That's the standing question that people have to answer. Is that true there, too? It's been true here for a while where people have asked the question is if X or Y is acceptable and the answer has always been, at least for people on, on, on the right so far, has always been who's going to get them to power. And we've had a range of different personalities who are absolutely not fit to rule or run the country thrusted into power because they were the best chance for conservative voting members of the Tory party. One of the reasons why Anderson says that he doesn't need to apologise, or at least he hasn't, is because he said he's had widespread support from constituents and Conservative MPs, and he insists that he's on the right side 
of the argument. And I, I, whilst widespread is somewhat of an elastic term, there, there is no two ways about it. It could be 10%, 15%, maybe even 20%. I, I don't know. He will have had a round of applause from a lot of people for this. I struggle to believe. Again, I'm really bored of this stuff. This is a man who... This is a man... Brother, I'm bored too. But we can't say that there aren't some racists in Britain. And and what I think is really fascinating about this, so James Cleverly, the Home Secretary, who is black, has been one of the high-profile Tories who have said he needs to apologise for his comments. Whereas you have Sunak, who is brown, who hasn't, and many other people of colour within the Conservative Party haven't. I think this is an incredibly... There is the whole odious nature of what Lee Anderson is referring to, that it just doesn't seem right that a Muslim is running London. And Khan has been doing... He doesn't talk about race or religion. It's just so obviously um, a dog whistle because his surname is Khan and he's a Muslim. He practices that so privately. So it just doesn't feel right. This is a fascinating juncture for the Conservative Party because at least explicitly they've done so well with promoting people who are visibly of minorities to the highest office. The Home Secretary is brown. Suella Braverman, Priti Patel, Kwasi Kupkotan, Rishi Sunak, etc. But this stain of racism is still there. And we have to also put it in contrast, or at least a mirror, to the accusations of anti-Semitism, which are generally thrown at the Labour Party as well. So I think the elephant, one of the elephants in the room here, because there are many elephants in the room, is the war in Gaza and the tensions that has caused in both parties. And I think the only way this makes any sense that he could accuse Sadiq Khan of being any level of an extremist is because regularly in London, people are marching who are pro-Palestinian. That, 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 that is it. But that's, dare I say, I thought, that was, I thought we lived in a democracy myself. I don't know. Tanya, last words to you, sir. Look, I, I was going to say very quickly, the reason why I don't believe Lee Anderson, he's got widespread support from anyone is because this is a man who we know in the past has faked. He has faked a meeting with a friend, an old pal of his, and he claimed it was a constituent that he had never met before. It turned out the, there was an investigative reporter on the scene and this person was a friend. He had a microphone on him, Lee Anderson, when he went to chat up his friend before the actual interview saying, ask me XYZ questions, and I'll just reply in XYZ manner. We, he has no credibility. He has no integrity. So if he's done something like that before, and I, he, he, there is no way I'm believing that he's got widespread support for never from any... High morals and ethics. Now, Z, all this man did was go up to a door, what he was door-knocking, canvassing what you do at Soul Strategies there, and he just had a friend placed there because he knew the report was going to be there. So I asked him a few questions. He says, but don't say that you know me. I'm sure you people at Soul Strategies do that kind of thing all the time with, with your uh, candidates that you're supporting. Yeah, no, doing that. <laughs> Interesting. But, no, that is a, it's a unique idea, I have to say. I've never heard of anybody doing something like that. You have now Lee Anderson telling you. Yeah. <laughs> on that note. What we should do is start to wrap this up. My good friend, Aaron Fisher, what have you been up to in the last seven days, sir? Oh, my last seven days. Fortunately, COVID is still out there and it hasn't infected my household. I'm still testing negative, but my body is telling me that I may not be for much longer. So you've caught me in just the right moment. Yeah, outside of that, I am continuing to work on abolishing involuntary servitude in California and other states in the U.S., Hopefully we can stamp out the last vestige of slavery in our country. We should do a deep dive about this. It is one of the many things that shocked me when I first came to America, when I discovered that the firefighters who are risking their lives uh, every summer with those big, big fires all over the state are prisoners. It just beggars belief 
the whole thing just beggars belief. And the fact that in some American states, and, and you can talk about this much more eloquently than, than me, sir, in effect, slavery still on the books for prisoners is just, I, I don't know. I thought it was like a decoration of human rights. They put a line through all of that. But you Americans, you're exceptional, aren't you, Aaron? Exceptional. Yeah, we're number one in prisoners. Yeah, it's in you know, pretty much every license plate, most of the street signs, the furniture, and the vaunted University of California public university system, so on and so forth. Alfalfa that's fed to animals and dairy. There's a dairy farm on one of the prisons here in California. It's a big business. It's $11 billion of goods and services a year in the U.S. are produced by incarcerated people, and most of them can't opt out of work. They don't have any workplace safety requirements, or if they do, they're very minimal. No recourse. And in fact, many times if they were to say that they don't want to work for whatever reason, say cleaning medical spaces during COVID, they would lose their ability to get parole. It's a big problem. A, a massive problem. A massive problem. Z, what have you been up to? And are we uncles yet? And not yet. We are we're getting very close. Twelve days or less until we have a baby. But in the meantime, we are petitioning like crazy all across the country, getting candidates on the ballot. We are in the thick of season and also recruiting new candidates for 2025 and beyond. So if anybody's listening that wants to run for office, please reach out now about the 2025 and 2026 races. Let's see, when you and Mr. Z decided to uh, create new life, you didn't time that at all, did you? you didn't no. <laughs> Not the best time, not the best time. So it was, yeah, it's unfortunate that we can't like decide, but, but yeah, it would have been really nice to have an off year cycle baby. <laughs> baby number two off year. Tell us your web address and where people can catch up with Soul Strategies and what you do. Oh yeah. Soul Strategies, you can find us on our website, soulstrategies.com, like the soul of your shoes. So S-O-L-E, you can find us on all social media platforms. And if you do want to run for office, please email us at inquiries or at info at soulstrategies.com. Tanya Oldtrade, you had the, the weight of being uh, the, the sole British pundit uh, on, on your back. And you know what? Uh, you did well, sir. How did it feel being the, the I'm going to say the sole Brit on the panel? Not quite true. But then again, I'm not on the panel. Yes, the sole Brit on the panel. How did it feel, Tanya? Oh, it was good. Um especially talking about the Amazon and and just you could yeah i think just talking about stuff like this makes it all i i think because of the passion of wanting change and wanting something different for our country yeah it felt good it's good and are you if you had a whole week of talking about lee anderson the, the machinations of far-right politics and its pervasive effect and pernicious effect on, on british politics is that what you've been talking about with, with your friends and family all week? No, not at all. No, I've been working. I've been doing a little bit light reading, cycling, swimming, doing some gym work. That's what my week has been. What have you been reading in lightness? I'm still reading The Secret Barrister. It's a, an expose of the justice system written by a secret barrister, but really explains about how funding cuts and resource poor resources have driven us to not really provide justice for people. We're just providing the charade of justice. I I hear you, my my friend. I found myself in Crown Court yesterday as a... Not in the dock. Let me just put that in very quickly. I found myself observing a trial just yesterday and, and I must admit I quite like the ceremony. I like the horse where we horse mm. wigs i like all of that it says you are somewhere not ordinary mm. at somewhere of import so i like that and it was quite fascinating to see the prosecution and the interaction with the prosecution and then with the defense barrister and then to realize the wide uh power and discretion that the judge actually has within parameters. Say, it was this was a drugs case, and the gentleman who was accused 
because he didn't have, I think it was over 35 ecstasy tablets. There was a 20, and, and he admitted guilty to possession. He had 32. There was an automatic 25% discount on whatever the sentence was going to be. It was fascinating. So the way that everything, not everything, so many things are quantified in that way. But still, this man could have gone down. And the judge said no. And you just think, my gosh, families could have been broken up here. Jobs could have been lost. Don't, don't get me wrong. This gentleman put himself in jeopardy by committing the offence. But still, the word mitigating circumstances and even the mitigating circumstances were, were, were quite tugged at the heartstrings. But you didn't know which way this judge was going to go. The judge went, if I ever see you in front of me again for a drugs offence, you're going to go down. You're going to have community service. Uh, I do believe you're trying to uh, pull, pull your life together. And I, I don't think it's well, every day we, we come across somebody who has literally that level of power o- over others. It, it is fascinating. It's really fascinating. We've we, we've designed a fa- it was designed to be a fantastic system, and the the power and authority the job that is built uh, is very impressive. And in fact, in the way in which they build them, the way in which they use those powers uh, is very impressive. But there are lots of holes that we've seen that the, the system has come under right now, and it it doesn't encourage people who are actual victims to engage with the system. Actually, pushes them away, forces them to. It frustrates them and real victims are suffering from not being able to engage with the system and criminals are getting away with many crimes. But in some cases where it works well, like one you've just explained, it's beautiful to watch. It's a it's really impressive pomp and pageantry. Yeah. And and this kind of the the legal dance and with the language that was used between the, the prosecutor and the defender and, and whatever, it, it it's something which we all should um, at least uh, watch and be present. Not just once in a while, two or three times, because it is, it's a really humbling experience. It's a really humbling experience, and I wasn't even in the dark. Just before we go, just before we go, Tanya, did you see, talk, talk about legal things, there's an article I saw, I forget where, it might have been The Guardian, I really forget now, about specifically African countries and their legal systems when they still wear the British horse hair whip. Did you saw that as well? But what what do you think about that? I haven't seen the article particularly. Sorry, but I, we I know that lawyers and, and judges in in, in Africa, uh, especially in Nigeria where I'm from, would still wear the the horsehair in the weeks. And I suppose the the, the argument is that um, it's a colonial relic. We need to get rid of them, or it's now part of tradition in and of itself. Uh, where do you stand? Where do I stand? Um, which way do I swing? It's a case of both. It is part of colonial relic, um, but it's also tradition at this point, um, and it's something that we've got to embrace in, in equal measure for both. Um, we uphold the law um, and the idea and concepts that we, I'd say, inherited very as things that I stand for. And so if we're going to implement those concepts and those principles, the philosophy of the law, in that way, then we should have good gravitas to it towards it, and so it's something to be taken in equal measure. There are, there is obviously room for us to move that to another direction when we have new ideas and maybe we have new ways of running our, our legal system. When we should not be wedded to it as such, but it's something to embrace. Mm. Uh, I, I think I agree, and on that point, we should uh, wrap this up. I have mentioned this in the middle of the podcast. Uh, we now have a Substack. Please go over there. It's uh, one way of supporting the podcast. Things are sl- slightly different over there. So what, actually what you do get, you do get the podcast, but also you get an, an, an arb which talks about the subjects on the podcast. It's go to Substack, type in Royfield. We'll get you straight there. Or what you can do is go to royfield.com, hit sign up, and it'll take you there as well so whenever a new episode is basically put up put on the Substack, and i do put other content on there as well but you'll also be alerted also you will get the zoom links for the long form interviews that i do and as i said i'm speaking to irish Shapiro next week who's written who's updating 
her biography on Mitch McConnell now that he's decided to stand down. If you want to be in the audience for the live recording of that, sign up to the Substack, become a member, and just do the free option. If you want to give me money, great, but this free option is totally fine. On that point, left to center politics is right thinking politics, and look after yourselves, look after your loved ones, and do the right thing. Take care. Today we've had Aaron Fisher, Tanya Alltrade, and Z Cohen Sanchez, who is 12 days away from motherhood. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.